Hi. Several weeks ago, I told you that we were on our way to Germany, but wanted to focus one last time on the Netherlands. I promised we'd take one more look on our experience in the Netherlands before moving on to discussing Germany. Well, friends, Germany has come and now gone. And I have countless hours of tape that are yet to see the light of day. I interviewed barkeeps, baristas, music makers, coffee roasters, tour guides. Crystal and I, we talked about public transportation, what we wanted to be when we grew up, our views on dealing with conflict. The kids shared their thoughts on the various places we visited and experiences we were having. Oh, there's so much. We arrived in Germany a couple months ago now and first visited the historic Lübeck before heading to Berlin for just long enough to really start to get to feel for what's happening. We'll get to all that, but first, I simply want to say I'm sorry. I received some incredibly encouraging feedback from many of you and then abruptly disappeared from the airwaves. It's been a good and busy season, but it's still pretty lame, so I'm sorry. I won't let it happen again. But before we get going, let me just talk a little bit about what it is that I have been working on. So first, I've been doing some really interesting work back in the online safety world. It's been exciting to return to conversations I had when working at Disney and Club Penguin. So much has changed since we launched CP back in 2005. The conversations we're having then were almost exclusively about helping kids stay safe from bullies and people with ill intent. Back in 2007, there was this explosion of products for children, but so many of the companies and their product builders were either just grasping for ideas and copying whatever successful products were out there already, or they became overwhelmed with the prospect of trying to operate in what felt like a really heavily legislated space. That's changed a bit, and there are now so many more products again. Some are specifically geared toward kids, while others are not necessarily geared towards kids, but kids use them anyways. This has prompted me to start working on a new podcast, something a little different from the other podcast I've been working on, Service Please. This podcast will focus on the digitally connected and technologically driven space for kids and families. I want to help parents, like myself, or people just simply interested, better understand what's happening in the industry. We're going to explore things like esports and connected toys. We're going to talk to legislators and policymakers about how they're thinking about things. And we'll talk to product owners and inventors about the things they're building. It's shaping up to be a really great show, and I can't wait to get it launched. I intend to have a teaser for it in the next month or so. So stay tuned. If you have any ideas or questions that you'd like to see included in the show, please send me a message on Twitter at Nate Swatsky, or send me an email at podcast at inkandfeathercollective.com. Oh yeah, the show, it's going to be called Age of Connection. All right, let's get going. Welcome to The Natecast, episode five. Lubick was around already in the 13th century. In fact, Lubick was one of the most well-fortified cities in Northern Europe. Two rivers create a natural inner and outer moat, and then with the twin walls to protect it even further, people came from all over to live within the safety of its walls. So it's maybe no surprise then that it became an important city for other reasons as well. The courthouse, for example, or the city hall, is one of the oldest structures in Lubick. It has two doors to enter and leave from side by side. One is proud, large, majestic. The other, small, decrepit. The smaller door is where the guilty were led through, and the large one was for the free. The threshold of the guilty door seemed far more worn than the other. Just outside the courtroom, there's a classic statue of Lady Justice. Unlike most statues of justice, Lubick's Lady of Justice has her eyes open, piercing to observe all that she can see. In Lubick, justice is not blind. Lubick has this long history. It's proud. With an exception of two-year annexation in the early 1800s, Lubick has always been fiercely independent. In 1932, Adolf Hitler was campaigning to lead Germany. The fierce little town of Lubick refused to allow him to campaign there. Later, in 1937, Partly to punish the city, probably mostly to punish the city, but also to consolidate his support base, Hitler forced the long independent city to be annexed by the not-so-near city of Hamburg. 
After the war, Lübeck remained on the part of free Germany, but that natural river which once acted as a part of the city's defense, once again it became a critical border, with the free citizens of Lübeck on one side and DDR-controlled territory just on the other side. Years have passed, but the memory of the last generation still sits on the surface. Only now is the city starting to grow again, and even that is challenged by the proliferation of internet-based companies able to sell products for less. The small shops of the town struggle to find a market where they can compete in. One establishment, however, that stood out was this amazing American-style cocktail bar called Torrio's. Richard, the owner and bartender, lovingly crafted a space which sings of the classics, smoky jazz clubs of Chicago or New York. He hand-built a bar, hand-built a bar, and commissioned beautiful art of these classic smoky jazz scenes. The seats are meant to be sat in for long periods of time while his clients enjoy the sound of live music or tracks carefully selected and spun by Richard himself. He moves from shaking a drink to queuing up the next song on vinyl, all the while ensuring those of us sitting at this beautiful bar have someone to pour our hearts out into. Richard, or as his friends call him, Richie, and he's from a different time. When I think about crafted service and creating meaningful human connections, Richie, man, he's doing it. He spent years managing food services on a six-star cruise ship. He's traveled the world and studied art and music. He loves people and he loves his craft. He makes one of the greatest old fashions I've ever tasted. And he stills his own gin. Anyways, here's some of that conversation. Do you prefer Ricky or Richard, by the way? Richie. Richie. Yeah. Okay, cool. So it's a, it's very really nice one. Richard or uh, Richie. Let's start with just talking about who you are. I, I want to describe you as the classic American bartender who, who bends a sympathetic ear to the person who is sitting at the bar, maybe with a few beers in them, and, and is pouring out their heart to you while you are with flair doing all sorts of wonderful things. Um, with the bottles and with the glasses. Uh, you, you've got that look about you, and, and certainly this room has that vibe about it. Is, is that a fair way to describe you? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's a way to describe it, because I would say this is the highest level to make this, um, to find the combination of the professional bartending to um, serve the perfect drinks. This is, the, for me, the most important um, basic, that you have the international recipes, uh, that you have the international standards, and um, as well the the perfect service. For me, it's, it's, it's not about uh, only American, because um, the perfect service is working all over the world, supposed to be <laughs> like this. And here, especially in Germany, um, you have these problems in in some of the bars that you that the people don't look on the, on the perfect service. So for me, it's always um, I'm, I'm looking from the point of view like a guest. How I want to be treated when I'm coming in in a bar. This is the most important. So there must be a friendly guy who's saying hello, welcome. You are there. I'm happy that you are here. And um, and then making the proper recommendation, what is what what he likes to drink, and then the next level, of course, is something because to sit on the bar counter uh, to watch what is the bartender doing. So that's the reason why I, I make a long um, bar, and especially that I'm showing what I'm doing with which products I'm working. I'm not hiding this. It's the best um, um, thing for a guest to see. This is interesting. It's something like a show. So I want to get into all of that, and there's so many great stuff there that you just said, but first, um, maybe tell us who you are and and where we are, and maybe just a, a little bit about where you came from that brought you to this point. Yes. Um, I'm Richie. <laughs> Full name is Richard Heller. I'm already um, 37 years old. I'm working in um, all different kinds of gastronomy. And is from from restaurant to bar to nightclub to beer garden to coffee house and everything. I have a lot of experience in this way. Um, this was always uh, something I'm interested in, in in a lot of different kind of um, professionals and uh, professions. And the the point was my first um, education was um, I was. Um, um, say it's a plumber, yeah? the plumber who was uh, working with him. Yeah, okay. And um, this was my first. I want to become um, a musician when I was 16. I was playing in two symphony orchestras. I was playing in a salon orchestra. I was playing cello quartet. I was um, want to go became professional cellist. And I like I love to to um, make the music and 
in all different kinds. And uh, my parents are both musicians, so they decided for me, uh, when I was a teenager, there was no point to decide by yourself. They decided for me to make something where you can earn money. So that's a, that's a point because my parents always had a hard job. They have to run behind the um, arrangements and behind the money and everything. But they did well, but it was very, very, very hard job for them. And a hard time to grow up with uh, three childs, to bring them, to give them food and everything. And my father did very, very well. And um, yes, and then this was my first profession when I was a, became this uh, plumber. So I learned a lot, a lot to work with my hands to find out um, solutions for problems and everything. To understand how to work with the tools and everything. This is this was good for me. But um, the problem was while working with this um, job, I destroyed a little bit my hands, so it was not proper, um, not anymore possible to continue with the musician. Um, with music and um, so then the next step was there was this, okay I was a little bit um, I was teenager get started to get crazy a little bit and um, okay then um, I changed my opinion I um, had a little bit trouble at home and uh, I left the house of my parents I was on the street I was uh, um, had no apartment nothing and then I think what can I do I need money so the first start um, I was passing by a uh, a restaurant there was uh, help wanted so barkeeper wanted and um, I jumped in and asked guys what's going on I will do it and then from that time I start to earn the money um, for to survive um, in the gastronomy and then I continue working this then um, while everything was settled I had the apartment and everything was running in a nice operation I start to um, think about to do something again with um, art and I started with the, the acting stadium and I changed to, to Hamburg and uh, went to the, to the stage school and um, started to learn acting. And um, it was uh, interesting, but this was the school was not proper for me, so because I wanted to go in another direction. I have to say, I'm a little bit crazy, but in a nice way, I would say. <laughs> when, um, what my idea was to make something with uh, cabaret comedy or um, maybe when I was younger, I was a little bit stupid. I was thinking that uh, maybe I can go to America, to Hollywood or something. I became su a superstar or something. But at the end, this was not about this. It was um, more important for me to make something what makes me happy. It doesn't matter about the money. And that's what I found out. Because then on the time when I was studying, um, this was a, a private school. It was very expensive. I was working in the night. I was going in the school today in the daytime. I was really tired, and, and at the end, it, it doesn't work out properly. So I can couldn't con uh, focus on the on the important things, and because I was working too much and um, learning and everything, and I was not satisfied with the situation. So I stopped this um, expensive school and um, start really working in Hamburg in in, the, in, in a professional. Um, American bar and the guys we were a good team we had a good time I worked there over five four five years around and I started to like it very uh, very fast and um, I took the uh, um, responsibility of the bar and um, because the the owner of the bar he's starting growing with a restaurant and then later on with a very, very famous nightclub in Hamburg and I was responsible for this uh, bar. I was the bar chef there already. Even um, I learned it very fast. If I like something, interested in something, I, I go in it very fast and I try to make it. And then I start with the perfect hosting and we, we're making good money there. We have good fun and the, the guests are very important. And from this guy, from Sasha, I learned this important thing is to, to treat the guest like you wanted to be treated by yourself. So this is this is this is the main rule. What you have to follow. Just this. You t I'm telling this for everybody. But as soon as you started tending a bar, did you enjoy it right away, or did you have to warm up to it? Did you find no, yourself? No, no, I was I was very straight away uh, comfortable ah. because. What I found out, uh, even in the last years, I'm feeling much more safer and uh, behind the bar because I have the the border a little bit between me and the guest. So and I, that's interesting. As a musician, so I, I, I too am a musician. I, I grew up playing piano and guitar, and um, occasionally I would sing. But whenever I would sing holding a mic, I would feel naked. Yeah. But if I had a guitar in front of me, I had all the confidence in the world. I, yes. I feel like I could stand in front of thousands of people, but. I mean, is the bar like that for you? Is yes, it, is it's exactly. It's, uh, I would say it's exactly the same. The best example is when I w I'm behind the bar talking with uh, girls. 
I, it's no problem when I work at, at the work. <laughs> if I going for example in a bar or a night a nightclub in, on private and I, I I see a girl I like, I cannot I, I, I cannot go there and talking because I don't want to blame myself in, in the situation. It's it's something stupid, but this is something um, because you have nothing to lose. I change it already um, um, uh, much more. But when I'm even um, on the ship, when I have my uniform on it, when I have my stripes on it, and um, then I, then I, then I, um, it's something like you, you, you playing a role. So in in a movie, or you, 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 you're changing. You're not, you, you're not. Uh, I'm not Richie anymore. I'm the officer, or I'm the bartender, or something. I, I this is the, the behind the bar. The bartender job is my best acting role. So it's uh, the best. What I, I feel very, very comfortable with this. <laughs> How would you describe the character that you're playing when you're behind the bar? The bartender. <laughs> it's a bartender. I'm. I'm just thinking. Of even I'm. It's. It, everything is. Um, it's my and it's my idea. And the bar is. I'm the owner of the bar. But I'm telling this for my crew as well. I'm just a small part. I'm just doing the job here. I'm the bar chef. Much maximum. I'm. But I. The position. What I'm doing is. I'm the bartender. I like to to work like a machine. I like it when it's full. I like to when the music is going on and you're growing up and you you make some records from funk or you playing Manhattan transfer for example and then uh, that's super music so and then I, I can make and then this start to became something like a show you're mixing the drinks you, you get this atmosphere you're making some small talk you're making this little bit flair tending or this working flair and then you change the record and then you you keep yourself busy this is something that's very important don't don't get tired or something stop don't stop with the work continue and um, you see it in the face of the guests they smiling they like it and they say wow you're doing this and you're doing that and something like this and this is a, it's a very very good um, feeling for me because then I, it's something like on the theater the, the the actors getting applause and um, for me it's something when i see it in the faces of the of the guests i see okay they're happy they like it and they're coming again and uh, it's super this is my applause how different is the character of the bartender from you whenever you're not the bartender I have to say it's um, now it's in this situation it's now is I'm I'm living this um, this this to be the the bartender of the Torrios bar. What do you want the legacy of this bar to be after after you're gone or you retire? What um, once it's all said and done, what impact is this bar going to have had on the broader culture I'm, of I'm, Lubeck? I'm not at the point that it's everything is done ever. So it's not possible because you always have to keep up to continue the business. So it's it's nothing that you can come to a point to that everything is done. And um, I don't know what what will be the, the next. Maybe we will open another bar or something or we will make another. But I'm thinking... Um, First of all, I'm, I'm not thinking so much in the future. I'm just uh, planning for the next three or five years. I know um, I have to be here now for, for the next ten years, so it's it's fine. And if the, if it's work out, maybe we may make another business or we make something else. When my life is done, I want to be proud. But because I cannot take money to 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 wherever I go, I don't know. But it's this is something. The I saw a lot of rich guys and. Uh, they are so unsatisfied. They have a lot of money. They have beautiful um, girls. They have nice house and nice cars and everything. But they are not happy. So, what is the problem about the money makes you not happy? The people say money makes you happy. No, it makes you not happy. It's a tool for me. That's the reason why I put all in here. I don't need money. I just need that to pay my rent, to pay, pay my car, to pay something. Of course, I want to get some money um, in the bag that for my children or for my wife that they, they have a good life and can get good um, of course um, have food and everything and of course I want to have vacation and um, I, I want in, in a few years I want to travel back to the Caribbean Sea because I like the Caribbean and um, to make some vacations but only that what is necessary so to keep something in, in, the, in the backward the rest I want to have a good I want to have a good life because this makes you happy if you have a, a good job if you have a good life and everything then it's fine you still play music i am um, now start i have my bass here now already and um, i start to practice um, as uh, i started to to practice again i want to come to the point that on saturday evening for example then the business is running the guys can handle the bar and everything i want to come behind the bar go to my base and start to play with my wife so <laughs> this is this is something what i what i like to have a beer or to have a, something like this and the, the business is running talking with the people it's much more Im important um, sometimes to have a good conversation with, with some of the friends richie thank you 
seriously, I, I love this place. I love this conversation. And, thank you. And I appreciate. Thank you for it. On September 28, 2016, I posted a picture online of a desk that I had made on our patio in Paniche, Portugal, overlooking the pool. The sky is the kind of blue which makes it clear it's a warm day. The pool in the background further confirms that I'm sitting in some kind of paradise. The caption for the image was simply, Today's Office. This officially kicked off a season in which I would work remote with various companies and find all sorts of fascinating offices. There are dozens of Instagram or Twitter posts in which I've used the same words, today's office, with an image of the ocean, the sea, some mountains, a castle, a field. Working remotely has become a way of living. I'll never complain about the challenges, but they do exist. Some months later, I wrote a blog post about the challenges of becoming a remote worker. In this blog post, I proposed my top five tips for being a remote worker. They were, number one, Get the right tools. I wrote about founding the right tools and keeping it as minimalistic as possible. And while my tool bag's grown since I wrote that first post, I still can't overemphasize how important having the right tools are. For example, my main computer is a cellular-enabled iPad Pro, so I can connect to meetings whenever I need to, as long as there's cell reception. Number two, ensure you've got the right job. Not all jobs, or maybe more importantly, not all companies are great for remote working. I've had a couple clients in which working remote simply just wasn't feasible. I love this next one. Number three, become a pilgrim. I wrote how I was working on changing my mindset from being a consumer of the cultures we're visiting to someone who helps preserve and celebrate those cultures. The next one has proven to be more important than I could have ever guessed. Be of like mind with your partner. Crystal and I, we've been stretched as we've traveled, but we've never been out of sync in our desire and goals of traveling. We've been able to encourage each other when things became really difficult, and we've never thrown the hardships we're going through as weapons at each other. I can't even begin to describe how amazing of a woman it is that I married. Number five, adventure and purpose await you. Oh man, has it ever. The people we've met, the things we've seen, the history we've touched. Anyways, as much as being a remote worker has been incredible, and as awesome as working in castles and 900-year-old bars has been, space is the one thing that's missing from my list of the most important things to consider when working remote. While working at Disney, I had a manager who once during a review asked where I would disappear to some days. Truth is, I had a great office. It was a super awesome working environment, but... The coffee shop is where I felt most inspired, so when I needed to produce something, whether it was a new policy document or writing performance reviews, I would sneak away to a coffee shop and settle into the background lull of steam wands and conversation. With this knowledge about myself, when we set out to travel, I figured I'd do the best work of my life as I would always be able to work out of a coffee shop. Space, when working, it turns out it's everything to me. I've learned that it has a huge impact on my output. I used to think that it was being out and about which allowed me to be most creative, but since we began traveling a year ago, I realized that it's a blend, not just one thing. For me, depending on what I'm working on, I need to be in the right environment for that task. For example, as I write the script for this segment of the podcast, I'm actually sitting in a Vietnamese noodle house. Everything is red, it's loud, and there's a picture of a German Fred Savage smiling down on us all here while we're slurping our noodles. I think at one point there was some Asian music playing, but now we're listening to something inspired by Herbie Hancock's 1973 Headhunters album. It's slightly chaotic and somehow perfect for putting together these thoughts. Just before this, I was sitting in a coffee shop with a peaceful courtyard and a fountain. This morning, I worked out of a collab called Office Club. Today was 50% successful in finding the right working places. 
Over the course of our time in Germany, I ended up more permanently working out of one of WeWork's Berlin offices. If you don't know what WeWork is, Google it. They're incredible. These spaces are incredible, and it was a game changer for me. My mom, she's a professor in the business school at Okanagan College. Over the recent years, she's become increasingly interested in remote workers. In fact, she was really the first person to introduce the idea to me by recommending Daniel Pink's great book, Free Agent Nation. I asked her if we could have coffee and discuss some of the most interesting things she's learning. When I lived in Canada, we'd often sit down on the patio, either at The Bean Scene or Esther's and Sons, and have this sort of conversation in real person. However, that wasn't possible this time, so we recorded it remotely, which was a new experience for both of us, but it was a good one. Here's that conversation. Maybe, do you mind kind of just telling me who you are, what you do, and then maybe why you began to be interested in remote work? I'm a professor in a business program at Okanagan College, so the Okanagan School of Business. I also do my own consulting work with SAM Consulting, and that's around training and development, um, helping people figure out their why and helping them figure out how to grow and develop in their careers. And I also do consulting work for right management. That's a large manpower group. So I help them from the aspect of... Um, so I go in representing right management, and after they've been given the your fired news, uh, talk them through what's the next step. So really helping them focus on where do they go from here, how do they get through this, what are the opportunities available, and get them into that growth mindset again rather than getting stuck. Hmm. So... Basically, if I can do something to move people in the next step towards their development, um, and I'm asked to do something, that's a yes for me. You haven't always been involved in HR, but given the fact that I know what you've always done, I know that what you've always done really, really ties into that. But maybe tell me a little bit about how you came to do what you're doing now and the sort of work you did before and how that still kind of ties into your core why. I had a student ask me that on Thursday night, how I become an HR professional. And the answer is by accident. <laughs> I never ever intended to be an HR professional and I still don't even think of myself as an HR professional. So any jobs that I've had, any volunteering, so I didn't go back into the well, I didn't go into full-time workforce until you and Shannon were already in school. And my first job was working part-time, and I took it under the condition that any time there was a field trip or anything that needed to happen, that I would be able to work my schedule around school starts, school ends, field trips. And so even back then, without even realizing it, I was asking and I guess basically demanding a flexible work schedule. Um, I wanted life to fit into my family. I didn't want work to dictate what I do. I wanted work to fit around what I do. So it's figuring out how to be the best of who you can be, no matter what the circumstances or the structure in which you are called to work. Okay, well, hang on. You just said that we all have to kind of live within a structure which for somebody who is listening to this and doesn't know you might then think that you're a live within the structure sort of person. But if I'm any bit of a rebel, it's because I learned it from you. So <laughs> when you say that, what do you mean by that? Well, live within the structure. You have to remember that if you're a, if you're a designer of any kind, even if you're designing a building that has a roof and no walls, it's still a structure. So a structure just happens to be the design. So we used to talk about organizational structure. Um, it's more appropriately called organizational design. So we could say rather than the structure you're working within, the design in which you're working. When I talk about structure, I'm not talking about fitting into a box. I'm fitting into whatever, whatever work looks like, the context. So you and you and Dad made a hard decision whenever we were young. Although I, I'm I'm saying it's a hard decision because I think it would be considered a hard decision now. But maybe you can kind of speak to whether or not it was a hard decision back then. But you made the decision, nevertheless, for Dad to work, and you were going to stay at home with Shannon and I. 
and um, and you did that faithfully throughout our entire kind of high school. And and finally, when Shannon was in school, high school, you started to go back to work slowly, but you were still always available for us. Um, it would be easy to think that you have been doing what you're doing for a long time because you're now a celebrated professor with a tenure role within a college that has a great reputation. You're doing work internationally, which is also really cool. You're doing case studies and winning competitions. All that's really awesome and and it's worthy of celebrating. Um, but you spent a huge segment of your career time not being in a career. Um, how do you think that has shaped what you do now? And how do you think things have changed from whenever you kind of first started asking for flexibility when you're going back to work to the workplace now, if you were to ask for those sort of same things? I think we need to be careful not to associate work and what you're doing with a paycheck. So I volunteered through everything that you guys were involved in. I was volunteering and I was doing things as a volunteer that I now do and get a paycheck for. So if you guys were in kindergarten, I was volunteering in the classroom, doing whatever needed to happen. Um, as you went through different things, if you were, you know, your, your high school graduation celebration, you guys went rafting. I was part of the committee that was planning that. So the things that I do now that I'm paid for, if I look back over well, any amount of time that I can, I can remember volunteering, um, even when I was in high school, it's all of the same things that I'm doing. It's just the context is differently. So a paycheck really isn't the only time that you're being trained to do something. So every volunteer opportunity I had actually prepared me for what I'm doing now. And what I do on a day-to-day basis is, is a combination of everything that I've done through my life and I feel that I actually get to be doing the things the best of everything it was that I did throughout my life and volunteering is probably one of the best training grounds anybody can have to do anything and so it was a really high value for us that I was available for whatever you and Shannon needed and it was a non-negotiable that's just the way it was going to be and I remember at one time you guys saying, well, you know, can we go skiing? Can we get ski passes? And we couldn't afford it. And I gave you guys a choice. I said, okay, so if those things are really important, if the designer clothes are really important to you, then I'll need to go and work. What do you want? And you guys decided, no, we want you at home. We want you to be able to come to these things. We'll pass on the other stuff. And... It was a conscious decision that we would do all over again. Hmm. Whenever you think back to asking for flexibility from employers back when you started going into work, um, has it changed now? Do you think that things have gotten better? I think people are, are demanding flexibility more. And unfortunately, because of the the levels of workplace stress that people are experiencing. One of the one of the solutions is flex time that they're offering people. And in every industry, it, it depends what it is. I mean, you know, in the technology industry, it doesn't really matter when you're working, but there's still some co-located companies that feel you have to be there from nine o'clock in the morning till five o'clock in the afternoon, and it just doesn't make sense. But more and more people that I talk to are actually going to their managers in those settings and saying, look, let me give it a try. Let me work from home for a little bit or let me do this and then we'll evaluate and see what it's like. But it's that fear of control, giving up control that most people have a hard time with. I think the the next step that really needs to happen and, and the whole mental health thing is is really speaking to this is that we're throwing things like flex time and all of these other perks of people in the workforce, but we're not taking a step back far enough and finding out what's the real root cause of the stress. So flex schedules is a good thing. And for people to ask for it, um, it's a good thing, but there's other stressors that are going on that are causing people as well to really need that flex time 
So rather than it being a band-aid that some companies do, I think it still needs to be more intentional that this is our organizational design, that we will build it around this, not because we're trying to address stress in the workplace, but because we are working with people and this is going to be the best way to do it. Right. So it's it's thinking about flexibility in the workplace and flexibility of workplace as a core decision, not yeah. as a solution to some observed problem. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And even when you when you talk about the area of remote work, you can't address and decide to go and have um, remote workers so that you can save money. I mean, it's it's not the right reason. You need to do it for all the right reasons. And yes, you probably will save money, but you also know that you need to be spending that money in other areas. So it's the, the intentionality, keep getting back to that organizational design. Why does an organization exist? Um, what's their why? And then thinking through what's going to be the best way to accomplish that and realizing that their biggest resources are the people in order to accomplish that and then create that structure, create that design accordingly. But it all has to start right back to why are you even doing this? Why do you exist? And then building whatever's best on that. So what do you think is the most important reason why a company might choose um, to have a, a remote team or a distributed team or at the very least a flexible work style? Well, it depends on the nature of the organization. But you have... Workplaces are great. There is there is a definite reason why to having a co-workspace is advantageous. But everybody doesn't work the same way. Some people are actually more productive if they, by choice, can be working from a space that um, there's not the same interruptions where you don't keep getting all of these emails or people dropping by and creating all these meetings that probably don't necessarily need to be. But if somebody's there physically, it's easy to have a meeting. And so your conversations, they're not as intentional. They're just easy conversations. So if it's, you know, if you're, if it's a workplace and you're in the same country, the same location, there's good reasons for it. But also with, with organizations going more global, you can't afford to have workspaces in every country that you want to work. And there's absolutely no reason for it. So technology has allowed us to do this. And you're able to use a much more diverse workforce and get the best of the best from anywhere in the world. And then build your organization based on the talent rather than I'm only going to hire somebody who can come into the office and work. Shane Austin runs CoLab here in Kelowna. And so... What he was saying is that he very much has seen the migration. So people will be working in co-located offices. Um, they may be given the opportunity to work from home. They may be working for a company that's in Vancouver. And so they work from home. They don't have to go to an office. Or people who are remote workers by nature, if they're entrepreneurs, they're contractors, they're freelancers, they're digital nomads, whatever it is, wherever, whatever um, their situation is. So he said, they'll start off working from home and then that the loneliness, the disconnectedness, um, all of those things that, that are challenges to working remote, even maybe a, a internet that's not Wi-Fi, that's not as strong. So they go from there and they'll go to a coffee shop. So they're in a coffee shop and they feel that, okay, now I'm around people. I just spoke to somebody last week who works for uh, the bank and she's one of their advisors. She's been working from home for 11 years, but she knows that she needs to get out and even work in a coffee shop because that's how she deals with the loneliness and feeling disconnected. So people will do that for a while. Um, if you if you end up being in a coffee shop and the internet isn't great, then you can have an issue if you're making phone calls or conference calls. Then you also have exactly what you say there. 
you feel like to be a to be a good customer, you should be continually paying for the coffee and not just taking up space. And there's still that feeling of uh, you're not connected. Hmm. So then the next migration that um, that Shane is seeing is actually going to these co-work spaces. So there's other like-minded people there. You're not working on the same work. You're working for totally different companies, doing totally different things. But they become your co-workers. You also have all of these other people that perhaps have expertise that you need. And there's that camaraderie where you're actually helping each other out. So it sounds, though, like what you're describing is a cycle that is inevitably going to end up with people going back to working with their peers in an office. What what do you think is the thing that would end that cycle at a co-work space? Or is the co-work space simply the step back to people working together again with their co-workers in a, in a common, uh, not a shared, but a, a dedicated workspace? It's an inter- interesting question. I think, I don't think that we could migrate to the traditional way that work has always been done. Because as soon as you do that, you're automatically faced with hierarchy that a lot of organizations are trying to get rid of. I think there would need to be a total change in mindset in order to go back to that. One of the, one of the things that occurs to me when we think about that whole cycle about, you know, somebody works from home and then they get lonely, so they go to the coffee shop and then the coffee shop doesn't have the, the things that they need or it doesn't have the consistency that they need, so they end up in a co-work space. Do you think that it's fair to say that right now this whole explosion that we're seeing in co-working or people working remotely, it is a bit of a reaction and a bit of a resetting of the way we think about workplace and maybe five years from now it will look very different again. And if it does look very different again and companies are able to correct some of the reasons why people felt the need to work out of the office... What do you think will be left for the co-work space? Is the economy changing enough that there's still enough reason to have co-work spaces or to have this this continuing infrastructure being built out for the digital nomad? Or, or is really the end goal of this to create better companies that have just more flexibility for people to work from home or from the hotel room or whenever they're in town and local work from the office? We know from talking to people why they choose to go off site or there's a deeper why and that's what i'm starting to um do research on now what are the what are the characteristics what are the what are the things that make people successful as remote worker um what is it the need that they have that's driving them there what what do we already know about human nature and um, traits that they would have. So the high, poten- high, high potential trade index, Ian McRae um, is one of the writers of that. So I was talking to him last week. And so he was saying that the whole area of adaptability, of um, conscientiousness, that these seem to be traits that people who are successful at working remotely um, would possess um, people who are very intrinsically motivated. So they don't need somebody telling them what to do. So figuring out, first of all, what's the commonality of the people who are actually successful in these kind of work environments? Um, what makes them successful? And then how do we come along and help an organization, for example, so they're they're wanting to change the organizational design. So they, they intentionally want to have people working remotely. And so they'll look at somebody who's a really good worker. They're a high producer. So they said, okay, you'll be a good remote worker. And so they let them loose and then they crash and burn and they wonder what happened, what's going on here. So there's things that we need to go take a step back and study about human nature and what motivates us and, how are we uniquely uniquely designed as individuals to be successful in these different situations? And then how do we then come along and support people and support organizations so that they can do that? 
is going and working remote. It's a solution to something, but what really is the, what's the, the root cause that's making us want to go and do this? Hmm. And if we can kind of think about and establish how this all started, um, we will learn an awful lot more about how to help people as they do this. And maybe it will come around and saying, okay, if we can provide all of these same things, the same fulfillment, the same flexibility in a, in a co-work space, maybe it will go back to that. But from, from what I'm reading and what I'm hearing from experts in the area of remote work, this area is just going to keep growing. It's it's not going to go back to the way things were. So we need to figure out how to make it work and how to catch up with something that's already happening. It occurs to me as you're talking that this has implications for Crystal and I with our kids whenever we think Absolutely. about um, how we're training them to work. Um, but it also it also makes me think that there's, there's kind of two things also that might be um, at play here. So one, the workplace is also changing a little. What do you think about that notion that as parents, we ought to be thinking about the fact that our children aren't going to be working in offices, or at least there's a much higher chance that they won't work in an office like like I have worked in through half of my career, through you've worked in through most of your career. How do we think about that as parents? At your high school graduation, one of the things that the principal said, like in the middle of his speech, he turned around and he faced all of you guys. And, and ladies, and said, these students, the majority of them are going to be working in jobs that don't even exist right now. So that's been the same throughout history. I think it's just the change is exponential. So I think it, it gets back to those basic things that we need to really start raising our children, training our students, the whole critical thinking is so important not what to think or what to learn but how to think about what it is you're learning and what you're experiencing and then how do i apply that to no matter what it is that i'm doing it's um it's been a, a good conversation and i want to be respectful of the fact that you've got students to go teach and you've got other work to go do <laughs> um so can I ask one last question, just kind of in the few minutes that we have? Um, you have been working with, asking questions to, interviewing, studying, obsessing over this notion of remote workers. And um, I know from talking to you that you have come up with some opinions about what works and what doesn't work. So maybe it's your top three, maybe it's your top five, brand it however you want. But what is, what is your top tips for somebody like me who is working remote? So somebody who's working remote that you're not connected with any one organization? Sure, or or not connected to any necessarily a physical space. Okay, because there's, there's, two, there's two sides to the coin. There's the people who are working remote, and there's the people who are supporting people who are working remote. Right, that's a good distinction. Yeah, and um, because one thing you have control over, one thing you don't have control over. So first of all, if you are the remote worker you need to make sure you're doing something that you're passionate about. Um, you need to be, you know, when you look at emotional intelligence, you need to be highly self-regulated. And so under self-regulation, you know, you've got the organized, you've got the um, taking care of yourself, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, um, learning how to balance work and life. Because if you don't have a place that you have to go nine to five, then you never leave work. And you can totally destroy yourself and everything around you if you're not doing that. Um, you have to, with the different companies or organizations that you contract to, you need to take the time to make sure that there's a trust there. Because you can get bitten. Uh, one of the things that I love about the Finnish people is their focus on you build a relationship, you build a trust, and then whenever it comes time to doing business, it's not a difficult decision because the trust is already there. 
and making sure you've got great forms of communication. So from the, the organizational side, very, very similar kind of things, but you have to be intentional in setting these up so that your remote workers will be successful. So take the time to build trust. Don't just throw somebody out there to do remote and say, see you later. Um, you build the trust, you make sure you've got excellent communication. He said that the absolute maximum time, no matter what the context is for your for your um, remote work, is you must be face-to-face -face with the client at least every six months. So if I have people working in another part of the world that I'm responsible for, the longest time that I can go in between having a physically in the same place with them is six months. But building into supporting doing everything you can to support that people and you can never over communicate. This marks the first time we've returned to summer in the and it feels similar. As I write this particular bit of script, I'm sitting in a sun-warmed courtroom, drinking a very dark Alange espresso. The nights are cool, but the days are still warm, and as I sit here in the sun, I realize how solar-powered I am. I'm curious, is everyone so affected by the weather as I am? If so, interested really truly i am but actually i just love to hear from you period podcasting is often really one-sided me talking to you i'm really thinking hard about how to change that but until i crack that nut we'll have to stick with the new old-fashioned way of doing it email and twitter would you drop me a line just to say hello? i want to hear your stories tell me about your travel tell me about your love of the sun or hatred for it send me an email at podcast at ink and feather collective.com or tweet at me at nate sawatsky that's n-a-t-e-s-a-w-a-t-z-k-y thanks for listening and patiently waiting for this next episode the natecast is a weekly podcast <laughs> yeah just brought to you by me nate sawatsky I appreciate you listening. Seriously, there's a lot of noise these days. I'll continue to learn how to bring things of value to the airwaves, and I'll strive to do so in creative and compelling ways. But for this week, 